As a part of the Born in Baltimore series, I have Stephanie Priest on Zoom today to chat about her new book, and it's called Rhythm Man, Chick Webb and the Beat That Changed America. She is a jazz historian, author, editor, and a former senior jazz coordinator for the Jazz Arts Program in Manhattan School of Music. Her previous books include Gil Evans, Out of the Cool, and Duke Ellington, His Life in Jazz. Chick Webb, well, he is a Baltimore showman, music innovator, and incubator of talent by the likes of Johnny Hodges, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Jordan, Hootie Williams, and Mario Belza. He was the king of the Savoy Ballroom, packing up to 4,000 people each night to swing dance and to have a great time. Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong were all his peers. Before we get into the interview, let's listen to a sample of the King of Drums. It's Chick Webb and his Savoy Ballroom Orchestra. It's a live recording from 1939. It's one o'clock jump. Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. I want to thank you. I've had nothing but a pleasure listening to some Chick Webb and really thinking about his life. And while there's, you know, some kind of tragedy to his story, his music and his output and his genius is just it's a joy to experience. And a lot of times people just get into the narrative of what this guy is. Oh, you know, he had this, this, this pain and suffering, but... Boy, was he a creative, and boy, did he make some great music, and boy, did he move the needle and entertain masses of people. It's just, without him, I don't know where we would have been. No, he was a major force. That is so correct, and, you know, it's, I think, one of the reasons that I really wanted to pursue writing his biography was, you know, it just seemed so... Uh, incredible to me, you know, how could someone who made such a dent 
and was at the absolute peak of national fame with his orchestra and Ella Fitzgerald when what they were doing was, you know, the popular music of its time. It overlapped with jazz. It was like a mass dance music for young people that, you know, got carried all across the country in in many ways, in fancy ballrooms, in little, you know, outposts and all over, you know, you know, all over the Midwest and mining towns. I mean, some of the things I found just sort of, I uh, would like to call it mapping chick web, you know, through newspaper articles and reviews was just astounding to me. You're so well researched and I looked at some videos that you're doing. I hope that someone can burns you. You know what I'm saying? I hope someone takes uh, uh, an opportunity to maybe document this a little better because like a Ken's Burn documentary, because one, you're so well-researched. This is such a well-researched piece. And there's, there's more to this. You're so knowledgeable now about Baltimore and what, how Baltimore, you know, was a jazz town. Your experience is superior also the, you know, so I hope someone just says, Hey, we're going to take this into a whole multimedia experience. Well, you, you, you know, there's a fabulous documentary that um, Jeff Kaufman made uh, that came out in 2012. So I have to speak up for Jeff and that documentary because it also really piqued my um, curiosity. And Jeff had, you know, really uncovered a lot of research and managed to talk to some people that were still alive that by the time I got going had, had passed on. And it's called The Savoy King, you know, but it's like a documentary is really different than the book, but they're all, you know, I hope it's, it's, um, as a friend of mine says, you know, biography, one biography is just the beginning. I'm sure there's, I'm hoping other stuff will surface that was the kind of thing that one of the big challenges of the book was unlike other, you know, quite prominent jazz musicians or pop musicians or any musicians, you know, is Ella Fitzgerald herself kept scrapbooks. She kept notebooks. She kept address books. You know, so all those things are like in the Smithsonian and Library of Congress and in hands where you can actually see the kind of stuff someone curates their their life, you know, and she, you know, a lot of stuff just kind of went by the wayside, which, you know, I was so fortunate to find through a friend who, you know, was very helpful with the early Baltimore research, musical research, who'd found this souvenir photograph. And on the back was a set list from 1934. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. You know, so that the, that kind of thing is so precious to a biographer. So I was always, you know, I want to hate, hate to say it, but jealous <laughs> when I'd also kind of gathered a lot of research looking at other people's collections. So it's kind of my approach was often a circling the wagons kind of kind of thing of 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 other sidemen, of other, you know, prominent people on the scene. A lot of people forget that black history is, you know, at the time was just completely ignored. I think Belma Moore said, you know, we only had Jet and Ebony. That's it. And if you made a paragraph in that you were a star. So, yeah. you know, you really had to come uh, like uh, in our, the Afro in Baltimore and other lo locations where they were documenting things. Oh, yeah. Afro was a treasure chest, you know, of 
material, not just in the entertainment section, because they kept, you know, they had, uh, what do you call them, ringers, stringers in New York who were, you know, writing about the scene in Harlem and then reporting back to Baltimore. Same with the Pittsburgh Courier, you know, so, but in the Afro, what I also found that was so um, helpful and just stitching together, you know, Chick's family, even before he was famous, because uh, they were active in the church that the family went to, the Waters uh, Methodist Church. There'd be these little tidbits, you know, about his sisters, about, you know, um, about his first visit to Harlem with his grandparents visiting UB Blake. So that's the kind of thing that I really just helped me fill out picture. I got the book last night. And, okay. and I got really, really excited about Chick Webb and what, was, what, what he represents. The takeaways that I've got so far, so I'm not completely finished, was, was pretty general. We kind of talked about is that there's a picture in the book where when he passed, there was a, a memorial and it was like a rock star. And the reason it was a rock star is because he was a rock star. He was at the Savoy. He was... Basically, you'd have 4,000 people can show up at the Savoy. You're during the Depression, you're at the, the uh, Harlem Renaissance, and there's prohibition going on, and people just want to celebrate. There's a lot of uh, angst, and this place was the place to go. He was the man. He was the one that was creating the music, and he knew what he was doing, and he was a professional. He had this young girl, Ella Fitzgerald, and, and he was able to turn this you know, music into a more current, uh, popular sound because she had that Shirley Temple vibe. You know, she was young. You know, they had all these chanteuses, you know, that they come out all glamorous. And and uh, Ella was just the girl on the street. Everyone knew her, like, kind of. She danced in, in, uh, in between songs. She was a dancer, more or less. She was the street. She was everyone. And everyone that came in to see her we're rooting her on because they're like, whoa, she's like us. So she wasn't with the gowns. She wasn't with, although they did kind of clean her up a little. Yeah. But <laughs> she later, was, later on, later on, she she um, certainly uh, caught on to you know having establishing a stage presence. You know, but but in the beginning, you know, she really was essentially, I want to say, living very hand to mouth existence in Harlem on the streets. Her mother had died. You know, the, uh, she didn't want to return to her stepfather or, or even her half-sister. And she'd been winning talent contests in, even when her mother was alive. And this was the part that I didn't really know so much, you know, but that she'd been encouraged to enter these talent contests as as a as a teenager by her mother in Westchester. The family, her family lived in Yonkers, just north of Manhattan. So it wasn't like she was totally new to getting on the stage. But I think uh, according to her own oral histories and those of others, um, she really did want to be a dancer first. <laughs> and at the Apollo, she got nervous. And this was her account, but it was also by other people. So she, they were like, hey, you got to do something. It's your turn. You know, and she sang and she got over, which is amazing. You know, but I think one of the things that, I just wanted to dispel these myths. There's also going to be a beautiful new biography, full big biography of Ella coming out in a few months by the great musicologist Judith Tick. So she and I got to be friends through this 
thing, you know, through through our writing and also, excuse me, you know, for all the heartbreak of, of COVID, we both got to write, <laughs> you know, we were home and, and I got to talk to a lot of people who probably might not have had time to talk to me otherwise, um, yep. who, you know, just had, were great resources and many of them became friends. And, you know, I kind of think that Ella was really lucky in so many ways. A, that chick ended up hiring her, which did take a little while. You know, his uh, she'd won another con- talent contest and uh, a couple of his side men were like, you really got to hire this girl. She's got something, you know, special. And she was different, say, than there were a couple of other female singers on the scene, like Ivy Anderson, already with Duke Ellington, Mildred Bailey with Paul Whiteman and her own radio band, other people. But it wasn't like the thing yet, you know, to have a girl singer and with a big band and big bands were just becoming big bands. So, you know, to me, Chick was a force in all of that and in absolutely in shaping the sounds of a big of a big swinging dance band as the country was coming out of the depression, you know, with the arrangers he had. A tisket, a tasket, a brown and yellow basket. I send a letter to my mommy on the way I dropped it. I dropped it, I dropped it. Yes, on the way I dropped it. A little girlie picked it up and put it in her pocket. She was trucking on down the avenue, but not a single thing to do. She went peck, peck, pecking all around. When she spied it on the ground, she took it, she took it, my little yellow basket. And if she doesn't bring it back, I think that I will die. I lost my yellow basket And if that girlie don't return it Don't know what I'll do Oh dear, I wonder where my basket can be Oh gee, I wish that little girl I could see took away from my, you know, doing this book was like, yes, he had, you know, terrible 
health issues that were chronic, some of which, you know, affected him more as a little child. And then when he got really famous and they were so on the road, they, their, their schedules were like completely insane. Young people couldn't, I don't think they can do what, what those people did, what the big bands did, you know, like five, five shows a day at a place like the Paramount, then dances at night, then running around to radio stations and visits, you know, appearances. And, you know, so that really took a toll on him, the more famous they got. And it, it was like, he just did not want to quit. You know, I kind of, in this heartbreaking way, it's like, the more they were doing, the more he was wanted to do. He felt like this was his dream. He was really an ambitious young band leader once he became one. You know, it's kind of just a story in itself that I don't think he set out to become one. He just wanted to be a working musician on the scene, you know, not, um, but he really grew into the role and he was one of the best. I actually telling a friend of mine, I'm like, oh, I'm going to talk about Chick Webb. And they're like, who's Chick Webb? And I said, just think that, you know, you're in a 4,000 seat or standing room area called the, you know, the Savoy and you are, you know, there every night running it. It said it's the similar to like every night Prince is in town. Yeah, exactly. every, night, <laughs> every night the time is in town and it's the funkiest, best time ever. And they are that the house band. They're going to, they're not going away. They'll be there tomorrow and it's just going to be as great. Yeah. So I, I think sometimes you got to put it in that perspective. Is like how lucky they were to have him at that spot. And when it comes to his health, obviously, I mean, this the whole thing is going to wear you down. But the fact that he was so emotionally involved and charged in what he was doing and the the outpour of love from fans and, and people who went to those shows, like yeah. they loved Chick Webb. Like, it's not like, oh, that poor guy is like, no, okay. he, he was uh, a solid entertainer. And, you know, I think that, uh, increase his life you know the, the fact that you know he had he had something to fight for and in return he was getting a lot of love and i know that there's a lot of racism and some other stuff that is documented in the book but as a whole i think that what he what experienced to him was like a big bang and uh you know it gave him a, a, probably a couple more years to his life I think so too. You know, it's drumming is a incredibly high energy physical activities. And, you know, uh, there were anecdotally, um, when he was ill as a child, it was said that, you know, uh, his doctor had encouraged him to play drums. I, re I really don't know if that's true, but what we do know is like, it is a, a very aerobic activity. It's a very coordinated activity. It, it, if you do something like that, it's like jogging all day <laughs> and, and some, you know, so I'm, I'm sure it just helped him in a certain way stay healthier for a longer amount of time, even though that seems counterintuitive. And the other thing I, I, I can't emphasize enough is what a force he was on the drums. And yeah. that's the kind of thing you don't quite get from the three-minute 78s. You know, he did not take lengthy solos on records except for a few and on the rec on, on the radio broadcast. But probably in person, um, from all I gathered, you know, I read many, many, or listened to also many oral histories. People said he was just... So every drummer worth his anything would come to the Savoy and just watch his every move, follow him around. We're completely in awe of this guy. And I think what he 
innovated as a drummer. It's not like there weren't great drummers in early, you know, earlier on, like Zudi Singleton from New Orleans and Buddy Gilmore with James Reese Europe and and others. But it's like what he brought to it was what we could think of the beginning of the drums as a forefront artistic instrument in not just jazz, but as we know, in pop and rock and roll, you know, and and when you see some of these photographs, he has this rack, you know, like nobody had racks you know, <laughs> in this, in the way that everything was in his fingertips. He tuned his drums, you know, so we also have to remember that the drums had been just going through a lot of refinement, you know, going from these really clunky metal parts to refined machine parts. So once, as he also got more famous, the companies like Gretsch and Ludwig were like, yeah, here, try this one, you know, so it's, um, it, you know, it's just kind of part of, part of his legacy. Uh, and that, uh, all, you know, generations of drummers kind of took from him, you know, who we think of the next, the bebop, you know, Max Roach went to hear him. Mark Blakey heard him on the road. You know, all the all those fabulous drummers that came after him, but even people of his time, like Gene Krupa with Goodman and so forth. Oh. you know his job was to keep that party moving you know yeah. that part like you know it's like every single night you know the the tricks of the trade were out there and his drumming and his ability to get people on the floor and keep them on the floor and and, and create a party atmosphere that's a lot of work yeah and, 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 that, and that and that's a key you know I really think we can't divorce the music from the dance you know so as swing rhythms as as he went from you know being a musician a dance band having a little dance band in the late 20s that all the beat was different it was more charleston two-step foxtrot you know um and stomp they called it stomp band so you can hear some a couple of the records from the 1920 in 1929 one of them is definitely a stomp you know and duke ellington that's that's what they called it like peppy and energetic music but then the beat starts moving you know kind of in a forward direction and i think chick was absolutely in the forefront of honing that rhythm and his arrangers, like Edgar Sampson, who was one of his early partners, you know, just crafting the sound of the band as it went from like 10 pieces to 12 pieces to a standard sized big band with like, you know, five brass and five saxes. I mean, it's that's a, you know, a evolution, too. So it's it's really fascinating to me. But yeah, you know, I kind of think he was a force. And I'm sure you read, you know, he he participated in these band battles, battles of music early on. So not just the epic ones in the late 30s with Goodman, but all along, that was a calling card of the Savoy. It was just like a way to attract crowds, but it was, you know, a cutting contest. All the best musicians in town right. would, would gather there. So like what an apprenticeship <laughs> was they, that? They, they do that today. You know, like you know, uh, uh, a battles between two artists. Uh, even though during the pandemic, you had two artists singing back and forth and stuff. They were, enter you know, the entertaining the people. I, do, I have a question about Duke Ellington. So Duke Ellington's from D.C. and 
Chick Webb is from Baltimore. And you look at Duke Ellington's work, obviously, you know, it didn't stop, you know. So he was able to create, you know, Black, Brown, and Beige and uh, Pari Sweet and very, like, you know, dramatic pieces that are wonderful. And uh, Chick Webb just didn't have that ability, uh, opportunity because time stopped for him. So when you look at the two artists, like Chick Webb was very forward thinking and creative, at, you know, for his time. But they came, you know, from the same area. They're about 20 miles away. So did they know each other before? And it seems like, you know, they were trading talent, you know, yes. through, but, <laughs> but they were also like kindred spirits, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, I don't, I, I don't really have any evidence that they knew each other before they ended up, they both ended up in New York City and Harlem. Um, but I, I think, you know, we have to think of also these um, during the 20s, you know, uh, there was, of course, the, you know, this great migration of African-Americans from the South seeking opportunities in the North. And, you know, what what one might even call a great musical migration, a great entertainment. You know, it's like if you thought you had a chance at making a living as a musician or a dancer or a singer, go to, you know, it's like a certain New Orleans, a lot of those um, uh, musicians and so forth ended up in Chicago, but a lot of people from D.C., Baltimore ended up going to New York. And in in Baltimore, I, and the one of the interesting connections I found was, um, first of all, U.B. Blake, the great ragtime pianist, composer himself, you know, very vital to the whole uh, flowering of Black reviews and theaters and musical in New York City. He came from Baltimore. And I think, uh, you know, he was kind of a model. You know, people thought, well, maybe I can do it too. And, and Chick knew him. So when I said I found this article, it sounded like, you know, he visited him a couple of times before he made the move. And then there was another, you know, other people who, if we think for, for many, Chick Webb is obscure. Some of the other people I discovered who helped Chick Webb, you don't hear their names hardly sure. anymore. So among them was this banjo player, guitarist, Elmer Snowden, who actually outlived Chick. He, he lived into the 60s, I think, and had a resurgence. But he was the first leader, you know, he was the one who led the Washingtonians before Duke Ellington did. So he was the one who was like, Duke was already working in D.C. and a contractor and so forth. But Elmer was like, okay, you know, there were opportunities. So he um, was the leader of that band. And I, it, first it was the, called the Hollywood Club. Then it was the Kentucky Club. And, and that's when Ellington apparently, you know, his his drummer, Sonny Greer, and a couple of the other players got a little suspicious of Elmer because of money or something. So, all, you know, then it became Duke's band. And Duke was already writing original material. But, you know, um, that was, you know, there was a scene in Midtown where there were a lot of the speakies were in Midtown Manhattan, not just in Harlem. And then there was the scene in Harlem. And there were many, many just tiny little basement clubs um, outside of the big venues. And that's where this vibrant jam session scene was taking place. So Chick, as, of course, as soon as he knew that's where, that's where you go, that's where you find your network, 
I don't think he was he was known as the drummer, <laughs> the golden drummer, the amazing drummer in 1926. But, you know, he was good enough. And Chick, um, Duke knew that he had kind of a working nucleus of a band. And Ellington was often asked, you know, by others, um, I want to say, call it, you know, honestly, gangster owned <laughs> speakeasies would want bands that sounded just like his band. So that's um, how Duke said, hey, there's another job. You, you guys want to do it. And apparently... Um, first, he asked Johnny Hodges to be the leader, alto saxophonist. Um, and Johnny was like, no, no. And then uh, Duke pointed to Chick and said, okay, you be the leader. You know, it's just, uh, he's anointed. And I think um, some version of that story is actually true. But he and Ellington, you know, it's uh, just imagine like this big, great mixing mixing neighborhood uh musicians all young musicians on the scene they're all learning from each other they're all kind of really wanted to be the best they could be but they also needed to work so uh you know it was kind of both friendly and cutthroat and but it's it is true that the great alto saxophonist worked uh johnny hodges worked with chick webb uh before he finally went with duke and uh, Cootie Williams had um, come up um, north from Alabama, you know, kind of a circuitous route. And those are the stories I love. It's like, you know, he was he was a very, um, you know, accomplished young trumpet player as a teenager, even before then. And he left home with uh, a band, you know, and he promised um, an elder, an old, just slightly older musician, clarinetist, um, to, promised his father, don't worry, I'll take care of, you know, I'll take care of him. Don't worry, he could come, it'll be all right. You know, and they ended up in New York with another band, but where they were playing was a ballroom in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's like, they didn't really know where they were. <laughs> so finally, some people, you know, who saw them every day said, you've got to go to Harlem. That's where all this action is. That's where the jobs are. Baltimore is the home of Cat Calloway, who yes. is the ultimate showman. Yes. So I'm, and I think Chick Webb, if you would compare the two, if they're on the bill that same night, it's a party. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what kind of, you know, relationship they had. Did they know each other before and before they got up there? Or at least they were aware of each other. Probably. Oh, uh, totally. And uh, from accounts I read, you know, from uh, reading a wonderful um, Cab Calloway biography and his own memoir, um, Cab. While he was still in Baltimore, played several, he was like a multi-inch, you know, which is what kind of, if you could be, you had to be, you had to be versatile to be a working musician. So what I understand at first, Cab played a little drums himself, and he's a few years younger than Chick, and apparently really looked up to Chick, but I don't know, you know, Chick then was out out of the picture, but Cab's uh, older sister, Blanche, was also quite a model. And she uh, left Baltimore. She'd been kind of a very, had a name for herself on the local scene, but kind of as a recitalist and in school productions. And apparently she had a really powerful voice. So she was older than Cab and went out with a touring, a touring company of UB Blake Shuffle Along and ended up in Chicago where she became kind of a cabaret star. And then was able to give a 
job, get an MC job for her younger brother. So there was a lot of interaction between them. I don't know how how deep a friendship there was, but I know they knew of each other. They crossed paths with the Savoy. When Cab was really first making a splash in Manhattan, which he did very quickly because he was a singer and a dancer and he had... You know, he was a showman. He could jump over the piano and, you know, Chick couldn't do that. <laughs> but I do have this wonderful photograph of them, of Cab Calloway, Jimmy Lunsford, and and Chick all at this, um, it was kind of quite an amazing jam session party in 1937. And you just felt like, when you look at that picture, you feel like these guys, they really had great respect and admiration for each other. Even though I think for a certain amount of time, Cab his trajectory was a lot quicker than than chicks to be just become you know kind of a sensation uh-huh. and Minnie the moocher sort of that was only nineteen thirty one and that just kind of solidified that Jack you did when a chick is smiling at you even though there's nothing said yeah the I just did a uh, an interview a depth a deep dive about Lewis Jordan. So, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, this is like, he was in incubation period. Yeah. He was with Chick Webb. He was on the bandstands. He's doing, you know, he's he's seeing Duke in action. He's seeing a Cab Calloway in action. He's seeing, you know, even uh, he's being supportive to Ella Fitzgerald. They're working together. And then, you know, obviously when uh, Chick Webb dies, you know, he goes solo. And, and, and he... Nails it. He crosses over. He makes dance songs. He makes blues songs. He's pop. He is the the king of the jukebox for the ninety or the nineteen forties. Yeah. Like uh, he had eighteen number ones. They, he was number one for over two years. You know, we we were talking about Chick Webb, but we're like, okay, no one. We're not. He's, he's not getting his flowers these days. We were looking at uh, Louis Jordan the same way, and we're like, wait a minute, this guy is the real deal. Yeah, and was do you have any kind of stories about the the, the time period? <laughs> yes, with, with... actually, actually, yes, um, and it's interesting, you know, because again, I don't, I, I don't want to, um, and I hope I don't portray Chick, you know, uh, the great, uh, great Lindy Hop dancer who kind of came up to Chick's music, and you know, we have to think of him. He was not a goody goody. He was testy. He was disciplined about running the band. He was very kind and generous and took chances on a lot of people, including Louis Jordan, Ella Fitzgerald, um, the, a young white arranger named Van Alexander, who really was the person that crafted the vocal arrangements for Ella. Just so many people who came into the band, you know, and at various times, you know, um, sometimes when his band wasn't doing as well financially, they were called the farm team. You know, it's like people be in and out of there. But during once, once the, uh, the country started climbing out of the depression and it became obvious that swing really was a thing, swing music, the Lindy hop dance, you know, swing music and dance as the trend of its time. Um, you know, that's when chicks, Chick's career was just solid, even even a little before Ella came in, because he was on the radio. Yeah. He was on the radio. You could hear him all over the country. And um, so Louis Jordan, as far as I know, came into the band around 1936, 
when a couple of another alto player left. He was supposed to play alto. But I think, you know, from what I gather, he was one, not right away, you know, but he was one of the few people that Chick actually didn't get along too well with because um, there there was uh, apparently after a little while, Louis and Ella did have a romance going and Chick was very protective of Ella even though, you know, she was, by then, she was just about 20 years old, but he just felt like it was very distracting to other band members. He didn't like it. But more importantly, uh, Louis Jordan uh, could steal the show. (laughs) He was a comedian. He was a real extrovert personality on stage. You know, for a little bit during the band's history, there there was Louis Jordan and still, Chick still had... um, uh, Charles Linton, who was kind of the croon, the male glamorous crooner, and Ella, and they do things together, you know. So um, apparently, there were some instances where Louis just, you know, stole the house, and I think that was like, no, you can't, you can't do that. But then um, it took a little while, you know. I don't think he he um, I he actually Chick actually asked him to resign. Um, I think it was the summer of 1938. I can't quite remember. And at that point, oh, the other reason was there were rumors that Louis wanted to start his own band and that he was creating his own arrangements and he wanted to take Ella. And that oh. was, that was like, no way, buddy. That's, that's uh, you're out of here. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was like, you get not, not a chance, you know, um, and a couple of other key members of the band too. And they were like, this is not, not going to work. So. It, it's exciting. This whole time period is, is just exciting, and it's so great. I, you have a uh, Spotify playlist that I'm going to link into it. It's wonderful. Uh, it gives a great a great overview. And I'm going to put that into our show notes so people can take a li- listen to it. I hope they fall in love with his artistry just as much as I have just by doing this research, a point where I want to thank you very much for joining me today on Something Kid. Thank you. Can I just add one thing that I almost forgot? But when we, when you listen, and I'm sure you'll discover and, and your audience, you really hear the seeds of like a shuffle, a backbeat. Elle is already doing little bits of scat. She's doing spoken word, you know, with even on a tisket a tasket, which is so corny, but it's if the beat is like you can't resist it. It is so adorable and it really rocks, you know, and there's a couple of other numbers that she does, like Undecided, that one. Uh, rock it for me that you really feel like these are also the seeds of rhythm and blues and it's also it feels very not dated to me like i feel like they may have cleaned these up where they're not 78s anymore but the the sound quality and what's going on to me sounds very fresh and the ideas i can i can hear the ideas i can feel the energy off the app the songs and i was like like no wonder he was a rock star no wonder you know and we only can imagine like what his life would have been i have a feeling he could pivot you know as times have changed and he had ella by his side they were a team and they could have done no wrong at that point so who knows it's wonderful that you you wrote it and it's so great because i'm doing the my program is called born in baltimore it's something called something came from baltimore 
but my my thing is born in Baltimore. So I'm doing 10 different artists oh, okay. that were born in Baltimore and he was on my list. Right. And I and then all of a sudden you're doing a, a library thing. I'm like, oh my God, like how could I miss this? That's so it just, everything just works out. And I, I was really happy that it did. Thank you. And of course, don't forget Billy. <laughs> <laughs> She's in, I mean, so that's what I discovered. It's like so many more people were from Baltimore. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. They're not, she's not included in this one. I'm going to have to do another round next year. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's something came from Baltimore. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Thank you.